happened in four councils. And uh, I don't know if we'll get to the four councils. I, I kind of hope we don't because I didn't do as much preparation on that as I did on Augustine. It, 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 I'm trying to consolidate it. It's, it's very rough, and I hope you forgive me for trying to be selective on the 2,000 years of history that we're trying to just get into a few months here. What, what do you teach? How, how long do you stay on a certain subject? Uh, and you jump around, and, and a lot of it is I'm learning as we go. I mean, I'm asking questions of myself in the study and trying to, trying to see hundreds of years down the road as far as to what will be important for us to recall and what really is, is the minutia that we can forget. Before we even jump in, though, let's look at Romans 5. Um, and uh, let's, let's go ahead and read around the class, okay? Let's, let's, um, in, in history like this, we're not always, I mean, we're, we're taking scriptural principles, but we're not always just taking a passage and investigating it. But you'll see why we're reading this passage a little bit later. Um, you know, and we'll just go ahead and read the whole chapter, okay? So a verse at a time. Um, why don't we begin in the back with Linda and just snake around and, and keep your place and, and so it can go quickly. Uh, we'll start in verse number one and just read quickly through the chapter, okay? Okay, so I'll finish these last three. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think one of the greatest names we have of Christ in the Bible is the second Adam and how he's compared to the first Adam. And there's some real doctrinal uh, ramifications of what we just read that Augustine is going to be dealing with back in the years 390, 400, and so, and so we'll, we'll come back, back to this passage as, as, as we walk through that. that. One of the things we, we got to understand as we go through church history, and it's something that I'm trying to wrap my mind around, is the division between the Eastern and Western empires of Rome. Uh, remember that the capital of the Western empire, so if you think, if you think in your map of the globe, the Western empire, right, it's, it's reaching out into Spain and even part of maybe Britain now, and of course Italy and all that. That would be the Western portion of Rome, and the capital city would be Rome. And then the eastern portion would include Turkey, um, all the way you know, into uh, uh, even the northern part of Israel, Syria, and, and that area. And, and Africa is kind of underneath there. If you understand the map at all, Africa is underneath there, and it's kind of split as well. And, and the western portion of the Roman Empire speaks Latin, and the eastern portion speaks Greek. And the, the, the capital in the western is Rome, and the capital in the eastern is Constantinople, which we, Constantine built that city and kind of moved, moved uh, the imperial uh, nature or seat of the empire to that city. And so you had this division. And remember, they, they had four emperors for a time. You had two Augustuses and two Caesars. And, and so this split is going to become more and more dramatic, not only because of their speaking and their language, but because of their beliefs. And you start, you start to ask the question, question. my, my biggest, biggest question in the study is, okay, when did Roman Catholicism really begin? And, and, and how did it come about? Now, Roman Catholics would say the first Peter is, or first Pope is Peter, gave you the answer in this, in this, as a Freudian slip there. Uh, the first uh, Pope was Peter, but uh, there's no, there's no uh, biblical explanation for that. But then, then, so how did the papacy develop, and how did, um, how did the Roman Catholic doctrine develop? Well, in about 1054, which we're not to yet, there's going to be a major split. And it's going to be that this, this building up of the papacy is a long, long process. 
And one of the guys we're going to talk about named Leo is kind of bringing that because Rome started to exert more and more authority and the bishop of Rome started to say more and more how you know, I, I am kind of the bishop of all bishops. And you can understand how that's kind of developing into what idea. Yeah, I'm kind of the pope over all the other bishops. And the, and the church in the east began to regret the authority that the west was putting on. And so, and so it, 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 it split, so the, so the Western, Western Empire became, you know, the, the, the idea of Roman Catholicism, and the Eastern became, yeah, Eastern, Eastern and Greek Orthodox. Orthodox. Both are, are uh, really teach false gospels, but that split happened in 1054, which we'll get to shortly. What, what leads to Augustine's leadership is the fall of Rome and the Western uh, portion, portion of the, of the empire. empire. Um, Rome, Rome was known as the eternal city, city and for 600 years had not been conquered by anyone. Uh, it had seen no, no foreign, foreign invaders, invaders, but in 410 AD, a guy by the name of Alaric of the Visigoths, right, you're going to do much better on Jeopardy now, uh, besieged the city, surrounded the city, and uh, you know, the people in the city were sending uh, representatives out to Alaric saying, you know, what is it that you want? Will you go away if we do something? He says, we want all your silver, we want all your gold, we want all your slaves. And they were like, well, we're not going to do that. Um, finally, they, they entered into the city, they plundered it, they plundered the temples, they plundered the palaces, they devastated everything except the churches because Alaric said, I'm a Christian. Uh left all of the sacred vessels at the churches, but destroyed the queen of cities, Rome. Now the whole emperor, em the whole Western empire, did not fall until another 50, 60 years, 476 AD. There would be other what are known as sacks of Rome uh, that would happen in different eras, but, but this is the beginning of the end for that great city, Rome. Jerome, I think I put it on the, uh, on the sheet for us, Jerome made these comments. If Rome will perish, what can be safe? He also said, the city that took the whole world captive is itself taken. Statues of the gods were left in place, and they began to pray to these gods. Since they had made the city great, maybe they would save the city as well. Maybe the gods were angry because Rome had begun to turn to this Christian god. And after Alaric and the Visigoths came in, you can imagine, just like in today's age, you have refugees leaving Rome and heading to all parts of the empire looking for sanctuary, and many of them came to North Africa and a seaport called Hippo. And that is where we meet this man by the name of Augustine, known to us as Augustine of Hippo. People were beginning to ask, their question, ask questions like, how could God allow this to happen? What is going to be the uh, what is going to be ramifications for Christianity? Because Rome, yes, you had that persecution for a while, but Rome also, under Constantinople and even under Theodosius, uh, these emperors allowed Christianity and it flourished and thought, well, if Rome is conquered, what does that mean for us? Uh, if the eternal city can collapse, will Christianity make it? Well, this man by the name of Aurelius Augustinius, who is the Bishop of Hippo, decided to pursue these questions. But let's go back and talk about his life just for a second. Very interesting life. Now, as you, as you understand, with the Reformation uh, upon us on Tuesday, uh, on Twitter I follow mostly these pastors and, you know, uh, Detroit Tigers things, but mostly these pastors, and a lot of them are tweeting uh, in this month about the Reformation, they're making all these different comments. And this was something that was tweeted earlier this month by Mark Dever. 
and it's a quote from B.B. Warfield on, in a church history book. And this got me thinking a few weeks ago, and I don't even know if I have the right answer for it, but this is interesting. Because both Catholics and Protestants claim Augustine as their, their God. Um, most, most theologians who we would agree with and like and read their stuff would say Augustine was the greatest Christian thinker since Paul, and probably there hasn't been one since Paul. In fact, a lot of what Augustine taught and believed and preached, uh, Martin Luther uh, found himself in agreement with that. But here's, here's the comment that was made by Deborah, and, and let's discuss this for a minute and see, if you read this, what would you believe? Here's what he said. The Reformation was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. Listen to it again. Okay, so the Reformation, we consider the Reformation. Here's what it is. It is the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. Maybe that's too early on a Sunday morning to consider how deep that is. What is really being said? The Reformation ultimately is the triumph or the victory of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. You have a comment. Pete, you're going to unlock the mysteries for us. Please do. <laughs> That's okay. Absolutely. So relate that now to what Augustine is believing and how Dever and Warfield say that the Reformation really, I mean, Augustine lived over a thousand years before the Reformation. So he's saying what the Reformation is was Augustine's, it was a victory of Augustine's doctrine of grace and a loss for Augustine's doctrine of the church. Okay, so what are we learning? Right. right. There's, there's, that's, that's a starting point. That's a, that's a starting point for us. Right. It's a starting point. It's a good starting point. Okay. And Augustine's doctrine. Okay, so, so what they're saying is, and, and here's the bottom line, is Augustine believes something about grace. And Augustine believed something about the church. And the Reformation proved that Augustine's doctrine of grace was right, and his doctrine of the church was... So something about Augustine's doctrine of the church was wrong. So I read that, and I'm thinking, my question is, what was wrong? What was wrong? I couldn't find anything. I, I really, I, I'm like, you know, there's... there's I've got, I've got four resources that I'm using for this study, a couple of books that are just general church history books. There's a third one that's called uh, the, the 12 point or turning points or something, the 12 points of, so it only talks about 12 things, and so if we come to one of those topics, I use that one. And then, um, uh, then there's a series of lectures that I'm listening to from Reformed Theological Seminary, and none of them had anything about it, none of them. 
So I found this quote of Warfield on, online, and it led me to some other things. So apparently, this is the Roman, I said, the Roman Catholics claim Augustine, and what do you think they claim him for? His doctrine of grace? <laughs> no, of course not. And we'll talk about that in a second. Augustine's doctrine of grace is right on. Because they said the Reformation was a victory for his doctrine of grace. And like you just so well said, the Reformation was all about it is grace alone apart from works. So if the Reformation was a victory for Augustine's doctrine of grace, then Augustine must have believed grace apart from works. Right? We can make that conclusion. I'm going to explain that to you too. But his doctrine of the church was, was apparently incorrect. The only two things I could find are these. Apparently, uh, and these are two quotes that the Roman Catholic Church loves to, loves to uh, attribute to Augustine, and he did say this, Roma lacuta causa finita est. Now, you all know what that means, so we don't need to go any further. <laughs> In Latin, that means the Roman Church has spoken, it is settled. Okay, now what does that sound like? It sounds like, certainly sounds like he's giving authority to the Church. He also, he also said this, I would have never, never come, come to faith, faith except it had been for the authority of the church. He also said this, our councils are only authoritative if they are approved by the bishop of Rome. Notice he's not even saying pope yet because we don't have popes yet. He's saying the bishop of Rome. I told you it's a long process until we get to the point where we have his holiness. But it's, but it's, it's an, an ongoing, ongoing process, process. So, so Augustine, Augustine is kind of, he's kind of leaning towards this. this. So, so I did, did listen to something on Ligonier this morning about this, this. and they, they, they kind of, for lack of a better term, they kind of poo-pooed these quotes. Like, that's not really what he meant. Well, it sure sounds like it's what he meant. Right? And I can understand why there would be some Catholics who would say, hey, the Roman Church has spoken, it's settled. And we listen to the Roman Church make comments about... Contraceptives or homosexuality. If the Pope says it, right, what is the thing? Ex cathedra, if he says it uh, out of the chair, then that's what we believe. And apparently, Augustine is, is quoting this, saying this. They began to take that. They began to take that authority, and that's why the other bishops, especially the ones in the East, resented that, and that caused that schism. Right. right. Mm -hmm. they, they began, began to take, take more and more authority, authority right? And they began to take more and more authority, Rome being the city of the empire, but it was resented by these others, especially when they would speak. Because what Ligonier quoted, and I just listened to it on the way here this morning, was that he not only said, Roma locuta costa finita est, right? Roma spoken, it is so. He also said, Christus locuta causa finita est. Which of course, of course you can you can, you can discern, discern that yourself. yourself. Christ, Christ has spoken; it is settled. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if I buy that. Uh, I'd have to research it more. I'm not an expert on it, but you can understand where the Catholics kind of gravitate towards that thought. But as Dever and, Bar and Warfield said, the Reformation proved Augustine's doctrine of grace was correct. His doctrine of the Church was wrong. Okay, if that's really what he thought. Anyway, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, because sometimes, because sometimes we elevate these people, these people to the status of perfection. perfection. Even in our own day, we can elevate somebody to the status of perfection. And kind of, well, if they said it, it must be okay, it must be right, and, and we can't do that. Anyway, Augustine was born in the year uh, 354, November 13th. Uh, his father was a heathen, his mother was a Christian. Uh, Augustine's biggest problem in life was with sex. 
uh, and we can see enough about that. He actually had a immoral relationship with a woman for many, many years, had a child by that uh, woman. Um, his fundamental belief uh, led him to something called, and I can't even pronounce a lot of these things, manichaeism. <laughs> manichaeism, uh, if that's even right. Their fundamental belief was that there were two powers, good and evil, that were fighting with one another. And it taught that Jesus did not really have a material body, but that his ultimate purpose in coming was to lead us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And he bought into this because he felt that struggle within. Right? He felt that struggle of evil and goodness within him, which we understand from Romans 6 and 7. Right? But he, he wasn't a believer yet, but he did have that conscience working in him, and he had the desire to commit immorality. Um, he became a professor, we're skipping a lot here, he became a professor uh, by the uh, age of 30 in Milan. His mother joined him, he was very dissatisfied with life, but in Milan, I, I told this last week, he met with the preacher or the bishop at Milan who was, don't remember, Ambrose. And Ambrose was a person who, Augustine was very, he was brilliant, a great orator, a great lecturer, a great philosopher, very logical in his thinking and in his arguments, and, and uh, Ambrose was one who presented Christ in a very logical way and kind of demonstrated to Augustine that Christianity wasn't just for the stupid, like Celsus had always said, and he felt himself drawn to this, but he continually knew only defeat until, and his conversion is very famous, he was walking in a walled garden and heard the voice of a child singing, Tola Lege, Tola Lege, which in Latin means take it and read it. And he had recently picked up a New Testament and laid it down, and he went back to it. Still in Romans 5, look ahead to Romans 13. This is the passage that he read. And I have a, I have a long quote there from his book, Confessions, um, which if you haven't chosen a book yet to read for our history stuff, that would be a good one to read. I think it's very easy to read. I've only read portions of it. Uh, but here it is in, Acts, in Romans 13, uh, verses 13 and 14, says this. He, he happened to just turn to this in God's providence. And remember what I told you about his struggles with immorality and, and that. Let us walk properly. Now, he'd already been under the preaching of the gospel through Ambrose. Remember that. And now he gets to this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You can understand how a man who's struggling with that would find that passage to be very helpful. Here's what he says. When deep reflection is drawn out of the secret depths of my soul, all my misery, you can see how dissatisfied he is, there arose a mighty storm accompanied by a mighty rain of tears. And I said, and thou, O Lord, how long, how long? Will you be angry forever? Do not remember our iniquities. I was saying this and, and weeping, and then he says, I heard a, house, a boy chanting, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. I returned to the bench, for there I had put down the apostle's book. When I had left there, I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read what we just read. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty. Remember, it's not just reading that scripture, he had this emotional experience. He's reflecting also on all that Ambrose had shared about the gospel, and he finally gave himself to Christ at that moment. Pretty, pretty fantastic uh, testimony. Now, he's going to have some major controversies that he's going to deal with. And one, of the, one is probably one that we should spend the whole rest of our time talking about because it is still, and all of these controversies that people face are still in existence today. Let's quickly talk about Donatism. It's something that we already mentioned. It's the idea that if clergy are not perfect, then their sacraments mean nothing. 
I'm really glad that this is true. I mean, come on. Right? But you could kind of see Roman Catholic teaching kind of entering in, right? I mean, uh, we're going to have a baptism today. And the baptism would mean nothing unless I'm perfect. You know what the baptism's going to mean? Nothing. Because I'm not perfect. But this was Donatism. And remember, it had arisen. I'll give you a chance for a second. It had arisen because these priests had given away sacred writings under the persecution of, uh, I think it was Diocletian. They gave away sacred writings. And they said, well, these bishops were not faithful. Therefore, they are unworthy to carry out communion and baptism and preaching ministry. And so uh, bishops and, and clergy must be perfect in order for their service to the Lord to mean anything. That's a horrific belief. And Augustine, Augustine preached against this. Because Augustine, Augustine knew the wickedness of his own self and how he had struggled so much against it. Now, it's good in the sense that, what, what is good about Donatism? What, what is a, a, a good aspect of that that we can cling to? Sure. Can you imagine? Can you imagine us handing out the Lord's Supper, men, with unconfessed sin? I mean, it's, it's one thing to receive it with unconfessed sin. We warn against that all the time. Yeah, a, a, a reverence for uh, our service unto the Lord, a, 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 a aspect of holiness or church discipline. Yeah, so there's a good portion of it, but error is usually truth that is just askew a little bit. Right? Weird error, you know, like, uh, like what you read in National Enquirer is not easily bought by the masses. Right. Aliens, Aliens have come, come down, down and, and Richard Nixon, Nixon and Elvis were cited at Kentucky Fried Chicken, Chicken or whatever. You know, nobody, nobody believes that stuff. stuff. But, but when, when you take truth and you just go, whoop, that's, that's when it's when very difficult. difficult. Pete, what, what did you want to jump, jump in and say? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what we're learning about these doctrines is, you know, I'm look, I guess I'm looking in my study for a date when Roman Catholics kind of started, right? It started on June 1st, but I don't think that can be pinpointed. I think what we're having is these gradual uh, beliefs that are shifting towards this idea that, you know, we have an infallible bishop or we have grace and it's got to be accompanied by works, indulgences, all these other things, and, and we're kind of morphing into that. The big controversy that you need to be aware of. I mean, some of these things are fun to think about. Some of these things are encouraging to us. This one is of critical importance, and it's called Pelagianism. Critical importance. And this is why we studied Romans 5, or at least read it this morning. Platonism, right, is, is, is beliefs that were taught by Plato, the great philosopher of, of Greece, years before Christ came. And his, his definition, definition of sin, sin was something along the lines of this. Pelagianism really, uh, we'll get to a definition here in a minute, but really it's an understanding of what is sin, how good is man, what does man need. Okay. Critical questions that were being asked. So Platonism said this about sin. Well, sin is really you just loving something at the wrong time or to the wrong degree. Okay. You, and, and an example was given in one of the things I, I listened to or read, wow, 10 o'clock, and, and it was like, I think Augustine wrote on this about stealing pears, right? You, you, you steal a pear at the market because you, you love the pear more than you love the company, 
or the or the or the marketer. You, you know, you you should be loving your neighbor more than loving the pair. And Augustine responded to that in some of his writings by saying, "Well, I've been known to steal pears when I had pears. Uh, you know, like I I steal pears and I have better pears at home." Um, what is the what is the idea of Platonism which says sin is just loving something to the wrong degree? What what is what is your response to that? Sin is just loving something to the wrong degree at the wrong time. What, what, Okay, it's, it's absolutely. We're not, you're not sensing the real gravity of what sin is. And sin really defined is what? Don't give me a, don't give me a, a child's definition of sin. What is, what is sin? Okay, I think, it's, I think it's even, it goes deeper than that. It's not just breaking a rule. Violating the character and authority of God. Right? right? Violating, Violating the, the character, character and authority of God. It's, it's not just that, that we love something more. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's really minimizing, as you said, the true nature of sin. So Pelagianism comes about. And it was uh, a guy by the name of Pelagius. Right? These names, you know, they just attach a name to whoever the guy was. Um, and he denied that human sin is inherited from Adam. Now, stop me if you've heard this doctrine before. Right? And Pelagius, Pelagius has been, been dead, dead for 1,700 years. He, he said this, and here is, I, I guess, what Pelagian is. Bottom line, here's what Pelagianism is. Man is basically good, and through their own efforts, they can overcome their sins. I mean, I put Pelagianism right there. That's what it is. Man is basically good, and through effort, can overcome their sins. Saying also, Man is free when they are born to act righteously or sinfully. Death is not a consequence of Adam's disobedience. Adam only introduced sin by example. There is no connection between the sin of Adam and our sin. Even though we just read Romans 5.12, which said, By one man sin entered the world and death through sin. Pelagius also said, It is even possible for some not to sin. And he said, But almost all do. But there are some who reach this state of unsinfulness. Augustine, you can imagine his response to this. Man is basically good. Here's a guy who struggled with immorality his entire life. Um, he knew that it was nothing but the divine grace of God that saved him from his sins. Of course, Adam's sin has enormous consequences. Man's power to do anything right is gone. Man is dead spiritually and soon will be dead physically. All men and women who are born are born in Adam and must be found in Christ to do anything of any value or worth. Here's what he said in response to Pelagius. Those to whom God does not send his grace are lost. Now listen to what we said earlier. We said the Reformation is the victory of Augustine's doctrine of grace over his doctrine of the church. So on doctrine of grace, he's right on. He says this. Uh, only, well, let, let's end it with that. Those to whom God does not send his grace are lost. Man has no power or unworthiness of himself. His salvation is fully and only from God. You can see how Martin Luther would certainly say amen to that stuff. So Pelagianism said man is basically good. Now, we don't, it's not called Pelagianism today, right? I'm a Pelagianist. And most people aren't Pelagianists. You know what they are? They're semi-Pelagianists. So Pelagianism is the idea that man is basically good and can overcome sins through their own effort. Semi-Pelagianism, then, is... Not so. Here's, here's close. Here's what it is. Go ahead. 
boom. boom. Yeah, yeah, right on. So, so, so basically, semi-Pelagianism says, oh, yeah, 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 we need grace. We need grace. But we also need to cooperate with that grace through our own good deeds. Good night. This is the religion of the world. Now, for the most part, Augustine's logic and debating crushed Pelagianism. That's why I would say... Most people, most people do believe in a sense that man is inherently good. I mean, we hear it after the shooting in Las Vegas. I heard a news reporter come out and say, I believe that man is basically good. Look at the long lines of blood donors. We just had this one kook out here that killed everybody. But everybody wants to get blood. But the idea of semi-Pelagianism, yeah, we need God's grace, but through a combination of our works is how we're going to be accepted unto him. I mean, this is, this is what the reformers rebelled against. Go ahead, give us it up. Yeah, so you got the inside scoop on this. Is this what you heard all your life? Let me ask this question, and, and anybody can answer, but wouldn't you say that most Catholics, most Catholics if you ask the question, hey, how do, you, how do you go to heaven? Most of them would even begin the answer by saying, well, Jesus died for me. They, they, they most would. And, and some would say I'm a good person, but I think a lot of people, a lot of Catholics even would say, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And, and then they would add very quickly after that, but I also have to be a good person. Or they might, they, they definitely intermix both. I don't, I don't know that there's a, maybe there is a whole lot of Catholics that just are completely relying on their works, but I think they venerate Christ, they appreciate the sacrifice of Christ, they desire the sacrifice of Christ, but they want to combine it with their own. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So in a sense, they are Pelagians, really. They, that, that's really what they are. I'm a good person. I can overcome. The whole idea of the nature of sin, I mean, it was, it was totally evidence to me this morning. I, I'm pulling up here at uh, quarter seven, and I'm, dry, I'm coming around 32, and I was like, should I, should I stop at Tim Hortons or not? And I didn't have any cash. And I said, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't. I, I don't like using the credit card. Well, I'll stop. I'm hungry. I walk up, and right on the doorstep walking in is a $20 bill. Lucky me. You know what I thought? I thought, oh, the Lord is so good. <laughs> the Lord is so good. Thank you, Lord. I picked it up, and I walked in the store. There's one guy in the store. So I got the 20 in my pocket. I'm thinking, hey, now I can get, maybe I can get bagels for everybody. Lord, you provided it for all of us. And I wrestled with asking that guy if it was his money. 
Why? I'm a sinner. I wanted it. You talk about stealing pears. Right, my credit card, what, a $5,000 limit. I could buy the whole store if I wanted, right? I wouldn't have any money to pay for it, but I, could, I, I don't need this $20. So he's ordering his thing. I tap him on the shoulder. I say, did you drop, did you drop some money outside? Did you drop some money outside? Oh, no, no, I never carry cash, he says. I go up to the counter. I say, did anybody lose some money? Oh, I'll just, just keep, keep it, it, you know. And, and, and at, at, at what, what point? point? Am I going to follow everybody around Romeo? Romeo? But, but I'm, I'm saying, saying the rest. So I did. I, I, I kept, kept it. it. They, they said, keep it. No problem. I mean, so, so I'm wrestling. But the whole point is, I'm wrestling with, if I don't say anything, nobody's going to know anything. I mean, how far can you take it? Am I supposed to walk up and down the street? Hey, anybody live? Right? So you're asked. I think you're taking a reasonable approach. But in a sense, the only way that I could do that is because God's, God's grace enabled me to do what was right. And I'm not trying to praise myself, but because I'm telling you, I wrestled with saying anything. You would have, was it your 20? <laughs> but I'm saying that's what we're talking about, the nature of sin. Man is not inherently good. Man is completely and totally corrupt and needs the grace of God alone. And Augustine was one who spoke very highly on that, speaking, and here's, here's, there, there's a key order in defending this truth. Okay, there's, there's two ways to defend this truth about our sin nature, and I've used both today, and I've used them in the proper order. What are the two bases for which we argue against the fact that man is inherently good? What? Yeah, but what are the bases by which we express that to people? What are the bases of our argument? And I gave both. I used two. Okay, let me ask it this way. Maybe I'm asking it the wrong way. What is our basis for arguing to others that we do have a sin nature and we are corrupt? I mean, on what basis do we argue that? Okay, through experience. But I, and I did that. I just did it through experience. But I think that's second in our line of defense. What's the first? There's a softball, folks. It's sitting in your lap. What? Yeah, yeah, the, the scripture. scripture. And that's, and that's what, Augustine what Augustine did. <laughs> Here's, boy, you better write this down. I thought you would have that one. And I know it, maybe the question is being asked wrong, but the idea is Augustine defended it this way. Right? Augustine had his own experience about sex and immorality and all that. And he could have said, no, man is inherently evil. Look at my own experience. But scripture always trumps experience. So scripture is the first defense in response to this heresy. Experience is the second defense. I gave, I gave you scripture. We started with Romans 5, and then I told you about finding this money. So, so I used both as well. But, but that is a key order for everything, is to first defend our, defend our, our beliefs from scripture and then present experience. Now, we're so late that I can only run through these. Man, let me, let me just talk to you. I don't want to extend this longer, so I'm going to give you these four counsels real quick. It's already 10.15. One of them we've already talked about. Turn to the third page. We skip a little bit. Anyway, Augustine was an excellent thinker, and, and his doctrine of grace was one that Luther rediscovered 1,200 years later. Four councils. We've already talked about one. They asked these questions, one, two, three, four there, and they're all about the nature of Christ. So we talked about the nature of man this morning, now the nature of Christ. First, question number one, is Christ divine? Is Christ divine? And that's going to be answered by council number one. Second, is Christ human? 
Okay. Second, Second is Christ, Christ human. human. Okay. Third, if, if yes, yes, okay, if, if yes, yes to both, then, then how, how do these natures combine? combine? That, that would be, be question, question three. three. Question, question one is Christ divine. divine. Question, question two is Christ human. human. Question, question three, if yes, yes to both, how do these natures intermingle? And isn't that something men and women have been wrestling with for years? If he's God and man, how is he both at the same time? And how do those, how do those uh, natures interact? And then four, what terms describe him? Or what, what should be the terms that we use to describe him? Okay. So, on the sheet, the four councils, uh, important church councils at this time, were the Council of Nicaea, we've already talked about that one. That dealt with the question of, is Christ divine? Is Christ God? It was Arius versus Athanasius, we already talked all about that. We, I wish we could talk about it more, but we can't. So that answered that question. Remember then, but it didn't answer it fully because there was these banishments and etc. If you still believe in Arianism, second, the Council of Constantinople answered the question about his humanity. There were people who denied he had a human soul. There are these weird people called pneumatomachians who denied the divinity of the spirit. Um, well, at the Council of Constantinople. Here's what was affirmed. Basically, I have three dots. We don't have time for all that. Here's what was affirmed at that council. Okay? It affirmed the full divinity of all three persons of the Trinity. It affirmed the divinity of all three persons, and it affirmed the full humanity of Jesus. Okay? I feel really sorry that we're racing through it. Third council. So if both are true, how do we relate these to each other. Um, what is the problem if you over... And I said, error is just truth that is askew. What is the problem if you overemphasize the humanity of Christ? Yeah, okay, he's just a great man. What if you overemphasize his deity? And, we, and, and therefore, the ramifications of that are... If he's only God, how, yeah, how could God die? Right? People ask those questions, and he couldn't be our redeemer because he's not a kindred, uh, he's not a kindred redeemer, kinsman redeemer, I think is the word. So how do these, how do these two natures combine? Um, here, here's what was decided at the Council of Ephesus, for lack of a, lack of more time. There was a unity to the natures of Christ. There is a unity to the natures of Christ. Um, I don't know how to describe that except to say that because I, I probably have 20 minutes we should talk about that. Uh, last is the Council of uh, Chalcedon, which is in the book that I have called Turning Points, this is, this is one that is, is used as a main turning point of Christianity, so maybe we should come back with it next week. But here's, here's basically what we want to say about this. Um, and it was... It was finalized by Leo, who was the Bishop of Rome, who is often seen as the first modern Pope. You know, they, of course, look to Peter. But here's what he said. Now, he's the Bishop of Rome and seen as the Pope, but listen to see if you agree with this. It's kind of long, and you don't necessarily need to write it on. Here's what he kind of summarized Christ to be. Perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. His two natures, unconfused, immutable, indivisible, Inseparable. Right on. Right on. That was what was accepted at the Council of Chalcedon. And here's what also was accepted. 
that this would continue to be a mystery, <laughs> an, an unscrutable mystery, that the church must not try to go beyond how Scripture has revealed to us who Christ is. Don't say that the Trinity is like an egg or like water existing in its three forms. Don't say that. Because, because it brings, it brings human, human philosophy and think it's, it's a, all the right answer to these questions is is Christ God and man is he is he what is known as the hypostatic union the presence of two natures in one person is he that yes well explain it that is a mystery and is inexplainable but because the Bible says it is so I believe it don't try to and that that was a great conclusion by that council we may have to come on to it uh, come back to it anyway. That, that council, council, the reason it's, it's such a great, great turning point, point is because, because it, it revealed this growing divide in the church because Leo comes in from Rome and asserts this. Even though it was right, they kind of started to reject that supreme authority that Rome was beginning to assert, and the split would happen in 600 years, 600 years later. But this is really the beginning of Roman Catholicism. A and B, conclusions. We usually don't come to these, so let me give you two conclusions. First, the Lord preserves his church. The Lord preserves his church from all kinds of errors. And he raises up the right people at the right time to combat these errors. Thankful for Augustine, who knocked Pelagianism right out. Even though it continues, he, he, he spoke against that in the church of the Second, the Bible is our supreme and final authority. Both then it was, and both now it is. I wish we had more time. I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe I tackled too much in today's lesson. In any case, it's an encouragement. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time we enjoyed this morning studying these doctrines. Even, even though enjoying uh, thinking about our own sin nature is probably not the right term, we do recognize our fallen nature and that Christ alone and his grace alone is what can uh, result in our transformation. So help us rejoice in that today as we worship you for all you've done for us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.